Hello, and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be continuing by taking a look into our little mini series all about the Confederacy. Now, in the first episode, we talked about the Confederacy and the history of the Civil War. And I would like to remind you about how I pointed out how long that war lasted. It was a total of four years. However, the Confederacy is still lauded and held onto as some sort of heritage by some Southerners. In the grand scheme of things, four years isn't that long. And so into today's episode, I wanna put the size and length of the Confederacy into perspective so that you can truly understand it. And so that's what we're going to try to accomplish today. So let's get into it. debate the total number of Confederate soldiers in large part because we don't have a completely accurate way to count all of them. Best estimates come to somewhere between 750,000 to 1 million Confederate soldiers. At least two of my sources suggest there were around 880,000 Confederate soldiers. So that's gonna be the number we're going to use today. To put that into perspective, since gay marriage was legalized in the United States in 2014, within five years of its legalization, 568,110 gay marriages have taken place in the US. That amounts to over 1 million gay or lesbian couples who have gone on to be married in the span of five years, meaning more gay and lesbian people have gotten married in our country than fought for the Confederacy. And as of 2019, marriage between same-sex couples lasted longer than the Confederacy did too. To put things into even more perspective, let's talk about how many people voted for the first black president of the United States. 880,000 Confederate soldiers over the span of four years fought to keep slavery as part of the country. However, over 69 million people voted for the president, Barack Obama, the first black man to become president in the US's history. He was president for eight years, which is four years or twice as long as the Confederacy lasted. And lastly, since so many of you like myself enjoy TikTok, let's talk about the size of TikTok in comparison to the Confederacy. 880,000 Confederate soldiers were mobilized in the South. And how does that stack up to one of today's most popular apps? Well, as of mid-2020, TikTok had over 50 million daily users in the US, and that's daily. And TikTok has been around for nearly five years. So again, it's also been around longer than the Confederacy lasted too. So as you can see, just right off the bat, the Confederacy wasn't really all that big. It didn't really last very long. And so while it left a big impact on our history in the United States, it wasn't really a positive impact, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. But before we do, I really wanna deep dive into some of the myths that people believe about the Confederacy and slowly dismantle those one by one. One of the most persistent myths about the Confederacy is a myth of the lost cause. And again, I'll dive into each of the more important myths as they come as a result of the lost cause in a bit. But firstly, I want to talk specifically about the origin of the lost cause and what the lost cause is. Encyclopedia Virginia explains, the lost cause is an interpretation of the American Civil War that seeks to present the war from the perspective of the Confederates in the best possible terms. Developed by white Southerners, many of them former Confederate generals in a post-war climate of economic, racial, and social uncertainty, the lost cause created and romanticized the Old South and the Confederate war effort, often distorting history in the process. For this reason, many historians have labeled the lost cause a myth or a legend. It is certainly an important example of public memory, one in which nostalgia for the Confederate past is accompanied by a collective forgetting of the horrors of slavery. 
Providing a sense of relief to white Southerners who feared being dishonored by defeat, the lost cause was largely accepted in the years following the war by white Americans who found it to be a useful tool in reconciling North and South. The lost cause has lost much of its academic support, but continues to be an important part of how the Civil War is commemorated in the South and remembered in American popular culture. Basically, Southerners couldn't handle that they were defeated, so rather than accept defeat, they just changed the narrative. It was easier for them to claim that the war was about states' rights or a myriad of other lies than it was to accept that what they fought for and then admit that they lost that fight. Generally speaking, the lost cause is considered a myth that purports that secession, not slavery, was responsible for the war. It goes on to assert that slaves were essentially happy and that they were unprepared for freedom. The myth also pushes the narrative that the Confederacy only lost because the Union had more men and resources. So then you might be wondering, why did this myth gain traction? The main group responsible for pushing this dangerous ideology is the United Daughters of the Confederacy Organization. And I could literally do an entire episode about this group alone, but I'm just going to touch on them briefly today. While they didn't create the Lost Cause ideology, they quickly spearheaded the effort to spread the myth. Britannica tells us more about this group saying, United Daughters of the Confederacy, UDC, American Women's Patriotic Society founded in Nashville, Tennessee on September 10th, 1894, that draws its members from descendants of those who served in the Confederacy's armed forces or government, or who gave to either their loyal and substantial private support. Its chief purpose is broadly commemorative and historical, to preserve and mark sites, to gather historical records and other material, to celebrate historic occasions, and by offering prizes to encourage student essays on the historic South. The UDC played a central role in spreading and perpetuating the lost cause interpretation of the American Civil War, which downplays or dismisses slavery as a cause of the war and instead emphasizes states' rights as the reason for secession, which has been used to serve the goals of white supremacists. But the UDC wasn't only instrumental in pushing the lost cause, they were also instrumental in supporting the KKK. The United Daughters of the Confederacy did everything they could to prop up white supremacy and racism as a woman's auxiliary group. Historians explains, today's UDC members seem to be uninterested in reckoning their organization's past. The early editions of Confederate Veteran Magazine, which regularly featured the UDC's work, or the minutes of the general organization make clear how their foremothers shaped regional culture around the Lost Cause narrative, including their work to add hundreds of monuments to the Southern landscape. The organization's own records make clear that the legacy of racism and white supremacy that has shaped so much of Southern history is inextricably part of the UDC's legacy too. And you might think that the lost cause myth is dead and gone, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And I know people today that still push the myth that the South seceded because of states' rights only. They truly believe the ideology and will get immeasurably angry if you try to point out the real history of the Confederacy. And to be quite frank, the UDC is still spreading and perpetuating the lost cause myth. Yes, that's right. Even today, they are still pushing the same narrative. An article from The Guardian explains that in the years since Confederate monuments have received pushback and have begun to be toppled, the UDC has filed lawsuit after lawsuit to keep them up. Even the UDC website reports that slaves were happy and willing to serve their masters, which is one of the tenets of the lost cause. I'm going to discuss this particular myth in a little while, but first I'd like to talk about the myth that the Civil War was fought over anything but slavery. The first myth perpetuated by the UDC and other groups like it is that the Civil War wasn't about slavery in the first place. They like to claim that the war was fought over states' rights and benign things like taxes. 
The reality is that the war was absolutely fought over slavery. The Confederate soldiers that fought in the war would be shocked to hear otherwise. History says, This myth that the Civil War wasn't fundamentally a conflict over slavery would have been a surprise to the original founders of the Confederacy. In the official declaration of the causes of their secession in December, 1860, South Carolina's delegates cited an increasing hostility on the part of non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery. The Avalon Project, which is hosted on Yale's website, gives us access to several important historical documents, including the declarations of secession. What we can glean from South Carolina's declaration of secession is that their entire argument for leaving the union is because they believed their rights were being squashed when the union allowed enslaved people to be free. And on its face, that sounds like it's about states' rights, right? But the argument wasn't just about any state's rights. It was particularly about the right to be enslavers and to have what they considered their property returned to them. Furthermore, using states' rights as a rallying cry to all Southerners was strategic. Only wealthy people were enslavers. As a result, poorer people couldn't have been affected by the reduction of slavery within the Southern states and wouldn't have seen it as a reason to unite in a civil war. So rather than tell the Southern people that slavery was the reason for war, the state governments in the South rallied people behind the idea that the union was overstepping in regards to slavery and as a result, the state's rights were being denied. The Atlantic explains, for the four years of its existence until it was forced to surrender, the Confederate States of America was a pro-slavery nation at war against the United States. The CSA was a big centralized state devoted to securing a society in which enslavement to white people was the permanent and inherited condition of all people of African descent. So again, how do we know the real cause of the Civil War? Because the people who started it made it incredibly clear in their writings and speeches. And again, the Atlantic steps in and explains. Mississippi's called the Declaration of Immediate Causes said bluntly that the state's position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. The North, it said, was advocating Negro equality socially and politically leaving Mississippi no choice but to submit to degradation and to the loss of property worth four billions of money or secede from the union. Alexander H. Stevens, elected vice president of the Confederacy, gave a speech that clearly demonstrated what the Confederacy was about. I'm going to quote what he says here, and it's a little bit long, so I'm gonna try and break it up into little pieces here, but I want you to hear his words directly because I think it's important that nothing is going to get lost in translation. In reference to the Confederacy's new constitution, he says, but not to be tedious in enumerating the numerous changes for the better, allow me to allude to one other through last, not least, the new constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institutions. African slavery as it exists among us, the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. And there you can hear it in the vice president of the Confederacy's own words, the constitution failed and the union split because of slavery. In particular, he emphasizes that the ideas of the constitution of the United States rested upon the assumption of the equality of races and that he believes that's an error. And if that's not damning enough, well, I've got a little bit more for you too. He continues on by saying, Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and moral condition. And that's gonna get a big yikes on trikes from me. So as you can see, 
Not only do they advocate for and believe that slavery is a moral imperative here, but they believe that anyone who is against slavery is pretty much insane. And it's this type of thinking is what dominated Southern thinking in general. It's what dominated the Confederacy. And to this day, this thinking lies deep within the minds of people who claim pride in the Confederacy and its supposed legacy. That's its legacy. It's not really much of a legacy. And it gets still a little bit worse from here. Stevens even goes on to assert that black people were cursed by canon, which is a biblical reference. And as a result, they are meant to be enslaved, like as if that's their purpose. He even goes on to explain that science will catch up with them and confirm this to be true. He explains that other societies built upon classism that enslaved white people were wrong and against culture, but that the black man's place was to be enslaved. And I feel like I'm gonna get sick from just explaining this thought process because it is what it is in plain words, it's sick. I'm trying to share mainly facts here because I want you to see for yourself what the Confederacy's role was, but sometimes I can't help but just interjecting my opinions because it's so fucking asinine to even think that this is like, this was a big thing in past tense and that this is something that still is like underlying, like an underlying thing that people are like, oh yeah, go Confederacy and stars and bars. And I'm like, yikes. And you might think that Stephen's speech is the only evidence for slavery being the cause of the Civil War, but that's not the case either. It's just the most damning and most obvious and makes a fantastic example. However, the Avalon Project gives us access into the Confederacy's constitution, where we can also see for ourselves just how slavery was intertwined into it as a governing document. In Article 1, Section 9 of the Southern Confederacy, it states, no bill of attainer ex post facto law or law denying the impairing the right of property in Negro slaves shall be passed. What this means in this constitution for the Confederacy is that it prohibited slavery from ever being abolished within the Confederate States of America. It held that slavery was a foundational tenant. And in Article 4, Section 2, it states, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states and shall have the right of transit and sojourn in any state of this Confederacy with their slaves and other property and the right of property in said slaves shall not be thereby impaired. Furthermore, in Article 4, Section 3, it says, The Confederate States may acquire new territory. The Congress shall have power to legislate and provide governments for the inhabitants of all territory belonging to the Confederate States, lying without limits of the several states, and may permit them at such times, and in such manner as it may be the law provide, to form states to be admitted into the Confederacy. In all such territory, the institution of Negro slavery, as it now exists in the Confederate States, shall be recognized and protected by Congress and be the territorial government, and the inhabitants of the several Confederate States and territories shall have the right to take to such territory any slaves lawfully held by them in any of the states. This means that any new land that became part of the Confederacy would have slavery and it would be protected by the Confederacy's Congress. And anyone moving from a Confederate state to its new territory would be legally allowed to take their enslaved people with them. And although these are just a few examples, slavery was mentioned more than just a few times throughout this document. It's a short document, but as you can see, slavery was clearly a part of the basis of the Confederacy. This was on the forefront of the minds of the creators of this, and the Confederacy wanted to be sure that nobody would take away their rights to be slaveholders and made that abundantly clear in their documents and speeches and other historical documents that we still have to this day. Additionally, as we've mentioned, the Articles of Secession from South Carolina, Texas, Mississippi, and Georgia all discuss slavery at length as well. 
So again, as it's clearly laid out, slavery was fundamental to the start of the Civil War and its abolition is the reason why groups such as the UDC cover it up because it's a blemish on the Confederacy. They want recognition for what they believe was the Confederate soldiers' bravery. So they make up lies about states' rights to bury the real reason for the war. But in order to bolster the idea that the war wasn't about slavery, they had to create yet another myth, which is the myth of the happily enslaved person. So let's talk about that. The people that believe in the lost cause myth also spread another lie, which is that enslaved people were happily enslaved and would do anything for their master. This myth was created to debunk the idea that slavery was responsible for the Civil War. If enslaved people were happy, then there was no need to end slavery or preserve it because enslaved people would stay happy in their current circumstances, right? This myth is a popular idea that enslaved people were happy singing songs, dancing, and generally happy with their circumstances. The idea is that their master was a paternalistic in nature, treating them as his own children and keeping them together as a family. It's so popular because it erases the reality of what enslaved people really went through. And just as a bit of a warning here, this is gonna get a little bit graphic because I want to be ultra clear what enslaved people went through. I'm not going to look at this with rose-colored glasses or try to make this easier to swallow because that's how this myth survives, by ignoring the disturbing truth. If you don't think you can stomach hearing the details of slavery, which is going to include mentions of torture and rape, you may wanna skip ahead or switch to another episode. However, I think it is very important that we talk about this, no matter how difficult. The first thing I'd like to debunk is the idea that enslaved people didn't resist their masters and that they didn't try to run or fight back. I wish I didn't even have to explain that this was the case, but even Kanye West has been recently claiming that slavery was a choice. So clearly there's an abundance of misinformation out there. History explains that current controversies about slavery are due to misinformation saying, such controversies underscore a profound lack of understanding of slavery, the institution that more than any other in the formation of the American Republic undergirded its very economic, social, and political fabric. They overlook that slavery, which affected millions of blacks in America, was enforced by a system of sustained brutality, including acts and constant threats of torture, rape, and murder. They ignore countless historic examples of resistance, rebellion, and escape. And they disregard the long tail legacy of slavery where oppressive laws, over-incarceration, and violent acts of terrorism were all designed to keep people of color in their place. Enslaved people resisted from the very beginning. They rebelled, they fought back. There were revolts, uprisings, and rebellions. One such example of this is Nat Turner. Nat believed that he was chosen by God to lead black people out of slavery, and so he rebelled. Turner, an enslaved man and educated minister, planned to capture the country armory at Jerusalem, Virginia, and then march 30 miles to Dismal Swamp where his rebels would be able to elude their pursuers. With seven followers, he slaughtered Joseph Travis, his owner, and Travis's family, and then set off across the countryside, hoping to rally hundreds of enslaved people to his insurrection en route to Jerusalem. During the next two days and nights, Turner and 75 followers rampaged through Southampton County, killing more than 60 whites. Local whites resisted the rebels and then the state militia, consisting of some 3,000 men, crushed the rebellion. And you might think that that was the end of it. If enslavers were so benevolent, wouldn't they have just been happy that they were reunited with their slaves? No, because in the aftermath, many enslaved people were lynched, despite not having been involved in the rebellion in the first place. And there are countless other revolts and rebellions throughout the history of slavery in the United States. But even if there hadn't been, many enslaved people tried to escape via the Underground Railroad. Many of you may have been taught about the Underground Railroad in school, if only in passing remarks. And just as a refresher, 
The Underground Railroad was a network of people, African-American as well as white, offering shelter and aid to escaped enslaved people from the South. It developed as a convergence of several different clandestine efforts. The exact dates of its existence are not well known, but it operated from the late 18th century to the Civil War, at which point efforts continued to undermine the Confederacy in a less secretive fashion. Some of the more famous people that helped enslaved people escape were Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, both of which were formerly enslaved. Frederick hid people in his house while Harriet helped enslaved people escape to Canada where black people were free to live as normal citizens. That's a pretty simplified explanation of the Underground Railroad, but the point is for as long as enslaved people were brought to the United States, they were running away, fighting back and rebelling. There is no version of the United States history that includes happily enslaved people that wanted to stay with their masters. So what happened to the enslaved people that were caught and returned to their masters? Those unlucky enough to be caught and returned knew what awaited them. Most runaways become horrific cautionary tales for their fellow slaves with dramatic shows of torture, dismemberment, burning, and murder. Charleston City Paper tells us about the horrific violence enslaved people faced. Slavery was a system of oppression based on violence and the threat of violence to extract labor. Economic interest did not protect enslaved people from abuse. Enslaved people were routinely branded, mutilated, whipped, and killed by their enslavers. Advertisements seeking runaway slaves sometimes offered larger rewards for a fugitive's decapitated head than their return alive. Charleston had an entire city institution, the workhouse, devoted to punishing enslaved people. Parents saw their children ripped from their arms and sold out of state, never to be seen again. They explained that there's no such thing as a good slaveholder. There were simply bad ones and worse ones. The better ones may have not beaten their slaves, but they would threaten violence, separation, and even their sale to get them to do what they wanted. The worse ones, they tortured and raped the people they enslaved. They continue to explain how commonplace rape was, saying, Southern newspapers openly advertised young, fair-skinned women, usually with straight hair, for sale as sex slaves. Fancy girls, as they were called, often fetched the highest prices in the New Orleans slave mart. Young women were viewed as luxury goods. The fact that slave owners routinely sold away their own children was an open secret. Torture and brutality was used against enslaved people for a variety of reasons. Enslavers used torture to punish an enslaved person for trying to escape, rise up, or even for stealing food. The punishments never fit the crime. They were brutal and horrible. They often endured severe whippings that would cover their backs in raised wounds and eventual scarring. They were sometimes subjected to iron collars that had long prongs with hooks in the end, meant to keep them from lying down or moving in any way that would allow them freedom. And of course, if the enslaved person did something deemed really bad, it would lynch them or brutally murder them in the most gruesome ways possible. One formerly enslaved person, Thomas Brown, described some of the punishment that he endured saying, I was severely punished by a board cut full of holes to raise the blisters. Then I was whipped with a strap to burst the blisters, which were then salted and peppered, Thomas Brown said. This burned me very badly. And his story is far from the only example. Another formerly enslaved person elaborates saying, my master was so cruel to his slaves that they were almost crazy at times, says Bill Collins, an Alabama slave born in 1846. He would buckle us across a log and whip us until we were unable to walk for three days. On Sunday, we would go to the barn and pray to God to fix some way for us to be freed from our mean masters. And yet another theme was the sale of loved ones and separation of married couples and babies from their mothers. My mother was sold away from me, said Collins. I was so lonesome without her that I would often go about my work and cry and look for her return, as I was told by some of the slaves that she would be brought back to me, but she never came back. Marriages weren't even recognized amongst enslaved people because they had no legal standing. 
As a result, marriages were often short, lasted only until one of the enslaved people were sold. Families were torn apart. Babies were often sold away from their mothers and mothers sold and taken away from their children. Even worse, some enslaved people were forced to marry each other, often without their consent. They would be forced to live together, create a life together, whether they wanted to or not. And even further, some enslaved people had to choose between their freedom and enslavement. Families that had been separated where one person was free and another was still enslaved, the free person had a choice to submit to voluntary slavery if they wanted to keep their family together, which isn't really any kind of choice. It was a sacrifice they made to stay with their loved ones. The life of an enslaved person was anything but happy. That's not to say that enslaved people didn't often try to see the best in their situation, praying and trying to build some type of family life, but they were brutally harmed and they wanted to be free. They did everything they could to make that happen for themselves. And to perpetuate the lost cause myth, pro-Confederacy advocates had to create a myth of a happily enslaved person to ensure that it looked like enslaved people didn't want freedom, that slavery was not harmful, and that black people naturally were meant to be at the bottom of the pecking order. The reality is that today, this myth is still being spread amongst the Republican party. Recently, conservative lawmakers, including Rick Santorum, Michelle Bachman, and Newt Gingrich lent their support to a document called the Marriage Vow. The document said, slavery had a disastrous impact on African-American families. Yet sadly, a child born into slavery in 1860 was more likely to be raised by his mother and father in a two-parent household than was an African-American baby born after the election of the USA's first African-American president. As you now know, this couldn't be further from the truth. So why do they continue to perpetuate this? Because it spreads the idea that the Civil War was based upon states' rights. It spreads the idea that the Confederates were good people, benevolent even, and worth celebrating and looking up to. Now, I know that this last section was really, really rough. So before we continue on into the next Confederate myth about black Confederates, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor who is obviously supporting the channel so that I can even discuss topics as sensitive as these. Today's Prism of the Past is sponsored by Adam and Eve. Now, many of you already know who Adam and Eve are, but in case you don't, let me just give you a quick little rundown here. So Adam and Eve is an online retailer of adult sex toys, and they've been around for quite a while now, since 1970 to be exact. And they have been providing decades of years of entertainment, fun, and wellness care products delivered to your door discreetly. And now they are offering 50% off one item plus free shipping on any product that is shipped to the US or Canada to all of my listeners. Maybe you wanna spice things up in the bedroom or maybe you just wanna spice things up for yourself or perhaps even a gift. I've definitely given (laughs) some strange gifts to friends in the past, including some sexual toys. So it doesn't matter if you're getting a gift for you, for a loved one, for a not so loved one, just a friend, whoever, you can now use my code PRISM to get 50% off one item and free shipping in the US and Canada. And 20% of their profit goes right to fighting the spread of HIV around the world. They offer 90 day no hassle returns and they have 24 seven customer service always available for whatever questions you might have. So again, if you wanna try something new out, make sure to go to adamandeve.com and you'll get 50% off almost any one item plus free shipping when you use code PRISM at checkout. Again, that's adamandeve.com and use code PRISM to get 50% off one item plus free shipping. So tied to the happily enslaved myth is the myth that enslaved people served alongside their masters as Confederate soldiers willingly. 
A growing number of people have begun to accept as fact claims that between 500 and 100,000 black soldiers fought in racially integrated units in the Confederate army. There are hundreds of websites, legions of online communities, and whole books devoted to perpetuating these claims. Billboards reading 75,000 Confederates of color have recently appeared in Missouri, and one fourth grade Virginia history textbook asserted that thousands of Southern blacks fought in Confederate ranks. Although it is difficult to measure the pervasiveness of this narrative, one study from 2013 found that 16% of students at a Virginia university believed that blacks fought for the Confederacy. It's true, there were many black men present at war camps as assistants in varying capacities, including cleaning, cooking, butchering, digging, and many more jobs. They were responsible for carrying out tasks that soldiers themselves didn't want to do. However, they themselves were not soldiers. In fact, until March, 1865, Confederate army policy specifically prohibited black people from serving as soldiers. Some Confederate officers wanted to enlist enslaved people earlier. General Patrick Claiborne proposed enlisting African-American soldiers early in 1864, but Jefferson Davis rejected the suggestion and ordered it to never be discussed again. So where did this myth come from? It was only in the 1970s that the myth of black Confederate soldiers emerged. This was an era in which scholars reevaluated slavery and its role in causing the Civil War. Teachers challenged the lost cause and so predominantly in museums and textbooks and civil rights activists battled white supremacy in the streets and in the courts. Remember the UDC? Well, there's a men's group that is similar called Sons of Confederate Veterans. And so they began pushing the myth that the black Confederate soldiers existed. SCV leaders began arguing that the Confederates had been fighting for the freedom of the South against Yankee interlopers, not for slavery or white supremacy. To lend credence to this pretense, they began claiming the existence of black veterans, digging up photos of slaves in Confederate regalia and records of black people receiving Confederate military pensions. White supremacists created this myth to ensure people believed that black men wanted to fight for this Confederacy, that they were happy with their conditions, that war was fought over states' rights, Because surely, if there were black Confederates, the war couldn't have been about slavery, right? So why is this myth so important to understand? The myth of black Confederate soldiers is important because it allows neo-Confederates to manipulate the popular understanding of white supremacy, to claim that flying the stars and bars is a matter of heritage, not hate. So you might be wondering, why do these myths persist if they're so easily debunked? The answer to that is complicated. It's a mix of groups that are actively trying to change the narrative, white supremacy, and a desire to identify with the past. As I already explained, the UDC and SCV worked really hard to be sure people understood what their forebearers believed. They used the lost cause myth to ensure people believed that states' rights was the real cause for the war, and they cemented it further into people's beliefs by orchestrating events and building statues to commemorate Confederate leaders and soldiers. The UDC even went so far as to help create textbooks for Southern school children that depict the lost cause myth within the books. They erroneously argue that slavery was morally correct because of it bringing wealth to enslavers. An article about the textbooks notes, one of the textbooks written by a member of UDC for Mississippi Public Schools in 1914 states, this book is dedicated by the author to the youth of the Southland, hoping that a perusal of its pages will inspire them with respect and admiration for the Confederate soldiers who are part of the Ku Klux and those whose deeds of courage and valor who have never been surpassed and rarely equaled in the annals of history. And that's gross. That's absolutely gross. I I can't believe that was a thing for children and that they just grew up with that. Like that was normal. And as if that was the truth. They also explain that 69,706,756 students were subjected to the lost cause myth saying, 
That's how many students were enrolled in the South's public elementary and secondary schools between 1889, when the government began counting students, and 1969, the height of the segregationist Jim Crow era, according to the U.S. Department of Education statistics. There, they were subjected to the alternative reality of the lost cause, a false version of U.S. history developed in response to the Reconstruction that minimizes slavery's central role in the Civil War, promotes the Confederacy's aim as a heroic one, glorifies the Ku Klux Klan, and portrays the White South as the victim. So again, unsurprisingly, with children essentially being indoctrinated with this propaganda, as these children become adults, they continue to spread the misinformation that they learned in school. And this can still be seen throughout our country. Many people who support the Confederacy either have no idea what they're supporting or they're just straight up white supremacists. And to make matters worse, these texts were then used to support the idea of segregation being a good thing. And then of course, there are those monuments. If you haven't heard of the Confederate monuments in the United States that have begun to be removed or toppled, then let me explain. The UDC and other groups like them were largely responsible for erecting monuments to Confederate soldiers to help bolster support for Jim Crow and segregation among other things. Today, those same monuments are often kept up after being touted as part of history and heritage. The truth of the matter is that the monuments were created and erected to enforce white supremacy, not as a matter of heritage. A good example of this is Kentucky. In Kentucky, 90,000 soldiers fought for the Union during the Civil War, while another 35,000 Kentuckians fought for the Confederacy. Yet Kentucky has a mere two statues of Union soldiers and another 72 Confederate ones. And what's worse is that the monuments often tell anyone from mistruths to downright lies all over them. Take Maryland, for example. The vast majority of people that lived in Maryland fought for the Union, and of course, Maryland did not secede. But the monuments that live there tell a different story, one of a state divided. So what is the purpose of the monuments? They were intended to push white Americans to identify with the Confederates' cause when Jim Crow and segregation discussions were at an all-time high. The Chicago Tribune states, Despite such statements, during and after the Nadir, neo-Confederates put up monuments that flatly lied about the Confederate cause. For example, South Carolina's monument at Gettysburg, dedicated in 1965, claims to explain why the state seceded. Abiding faith in the sacredness of states' rights provided their creed here. This tells us nothing about 1863, when abiding opposition to states' rights as claimed by free states provided South Carolinians' creed. In 1965, however, its leaders did support states' rights. Indeed, they were desperately trying to keep the federal government from enforcing school desegregation and civil rights. The one constant was that the leaders of South Carolina in 1860 and 1965 were acting on behalf of white supremacy. And the fact of the matter is, the Confederacy still has a strong hold on our society today. Two states even celebrate a Confederate Memorial Day in which state offices are closed for the day in remembrance of the Confederacy. And it's been just one year since one of those states, Mississippi, finally retired her old flag that had symbols of the Confederacy on it. The reality is that many Americans, including our former president, Donald Trump, still support and believe in the lost cause myth and the Confederacy. And many of his supporters also still support it. In an article from The Guardian, but figures such as Lee and Jackson are heroes to some. Their admirers include Donald Trump. In a rowdy press conference on Tuesday, he compared them to celebrated figures in American history, such as presidents George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Their admirers also include the white nationalist movement, which is currently surging in the US. 
The foot soldiers of that movement terrorized Charlottesville last weekend. Trump downplayed their violent excesses, saying they were merely there to protest the taking down of statue of Robert E. Lee. So is there really any wonder that the myths persist in our country, given that so much propaganda is put out by groups that have a vested interest in covering up the South's history? Is it really any wonder when celebrities and political figures claim things like slavery is a choice and that people like Robert E. Lee are heroes? Well, I'll let you decide that on your own time. And I obviously have my own thoughts and opinions as well. So the next thing that we're going to discuss in the last part of my little three-part shenanigans about the Confederacy is about the things that were born out of the Civil War as a result of the Confederacy. Because I think it's important that we talk about how even though the Confederacy was short-lived, it had an enduring and terrible legacy, not just on the United States, but the world. And that is where we are going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you for making it to today's episode. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.